Welcome to the Cultural Connections podcast, where we take a deep dive into the place names and landscapes of South Wales. This podcast will be flexibly bilingual, so some will be in English, Abith Rai and Gymraeg. In this episode, we're in Vaina. So Harry, tell us a little bit about the ward of Vaina. Veinor, mae'r Veinor tia pedair milltir i'r gogledd o Ferthyr Tidfil ac o fewn i bar genedaethol y banau brycheiniog. And Rhys, what about the history of the name Veinor? Veinor uh, is essentially a anglicised version of uh, Veinor, F-A-E-N-O-R, which is Welsh for manor or manor house. Um, and... This may suggest that, um, that the the community began as a manorial settlement where you had this manor house at the top and um, sort of smaller houses surrounding it, and the owners of these smaller houses would have paid taxes to the to the lord or, or the the occupier of the manor. There's no archaeological evidence for that, but the plate that the name seems to suggest that. And quite often when. In these uh, historical lookbacks, the things that make sense seem to, like Occam's razor, the thing that makes most sense is the thing that's normally quite true. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean there are plenty of these memorial uh, settlements around South Wales, so I mean, I have no reason to disbelieve that there was one here as well. Yeah, and apparently some of the early records of the place name being used couple it with the name of Gwino, which is the saint that we encountered in the podcast about Anissa Bull and uh, and his church up there on the on the mountain between the uh, uh, between the Cannon and Run the Valleys, so we're looking again at another settlement with hints of that early Christian church and some of the same characters perhaps uh, cropping up. And when we were filming for this um, particular ward, I went up and and. I was really excited to go and film around the Pontstigil Reservoir uh, up there because it's a it's a wonderful place. It makes me even when driving along the banks of the Pontstigil Reservoir, it feels a little bit Scottish, like we do that in locks uh, a lot of the time in up in Scotland. But obviously, it's a it's a man made reservoir. But is there any history of the 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 name Pontstigil? Uh, yeah, so. Um Ponce, so Pontstickich is composed of two Welsh words. The first is the prefix is pont, which means bridge. The second part, the suffix is stickich, which is a style. So the, the name literally means style over bridge. Um, there's, I, I'm looking at the, the old tithe maps. There's only one bridge I can see that, that, that could be the bridge that it's named after. That's the one leading into um, the village across the Tafbechen from the east. Uh, but but the, the the name Pontsticke has changed quite a, quite a few times over the past few hundred years. I found a 1675 roadmap um, which details a journey from Chester to Cardiff in the south, and it's described as Pontsticketh, so Pont and then hyphen S T U C K E T H, which is you know, very much an anglicised version of of the name. And this this is very 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 common in in Wales during that period. Uh, we have uh, Brecon becomes Brecknock with two Ks in it, and there's also a place nearby called Aberkinvik. Um, I don't think it exists anymore, but I'm assuming that was something like Aber Aberkinvik, and they've they've replaced the the double L with C K 
and they've added another K in there as well. And it's perhaps interesting to think about this this route. And Reese has mentioned a long, a long distance journey that goes through this point. And although Pansticker may seem a little bit off the beaten track these days, a bit like some of the places we were discussing in the Betlinog podcast, this is on the line of the Roman road running from Cardiff to Brecon, and so it's a major north-south route uh, for much of history and the current. Uh, A470 corridor is is a much more recent development than the, the traditional route um, using the Tafurkan Valley. There's so th- th- there's also an east-west running Roman road going through um, Ponsticca as well. So this is literally like a sort of communication corridor during the Roman period. And do we find that a lot in kind of the the Welsh valleys and Wales more generally? Like, is there is there routes that we have now, modern day routes that are widely different or even slightly different to what those routes would have been in the past? Yes, I think that is generally the case. The ancient routes tend to be the ones on the hilltops following the ridges, the, the relatively dry ground. Um, and the modern uh, roads following the valleys are really a kind of 18th century onwards shift of transport corridors. Um, with both the canals and then the, the tram roads and then the railways all following those those routes in the lower ground. So it is quite a shift, uh, which then also uh, induces a shift in where people are living because people need to live and work near to the, 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 uh, the through routes. So it's a, a major shift of focus. And I suppose when then we get to, to start putting in human-made reservoirs as well and things like that, that's it's going to massively change where those routes are and where the settlements are too. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, um, I can't remember what the name of the church was, uh, but there, there is a medieval church underneath the the modern reservoir, which was constructed in the 1920s. And I, I, I think below that, that there's, there's other things. Um, there's a post-medieval reservoir underneath the modern reservoir. So um, when you've got something like a reservoir, the construction of a reservoir, it, it, you're literally transplanting something very, very enormous over o- over everything that's in that area. And that, that transplanting is why uh, Pont Sticheth now, the settlement, is nowhere near the valley bottom where clearly the bridge originally was. Uh, it's, a, it's a transplanted settlement up the hill uh, away from, from the development of the reservoir. And, you know, in, in this conversation back and forth at the moment, we keep saying Pontstick Hill. And it wasn't until, like, super recently that I got the hang of, of saying it as a non-native Welsh speaker. Um, it's just a difficult word to say. But, Rachel, you were saying that, you know, around Merthyr, which is just south of, of that, that we've worked a lot, that they don't call it Pontstick Hill. Or colloquially, it's just it has a more easy-to-say name, if you want to say that. Yeah, uh, certainly in my experience day to day, I've noticed that people in Merthyr tend to say pond stick. Um, I guess just because it's shorter and a bit easier to say. I don't know, really. Um, definitely easier, rolls off the tongue a bit easier than pond sticker. I think what's quite important for for Welsh speakers to do in general is to to keep it quite open for people and not worry about people saying things wrong it's just about opening up the language to people and just 
just taking away the embarrassment that people have of possibly getting things wrong um, and not being able to say a word in Welsh we're going to appreciate the fact that you've you're willing to try uh, and in doing that you're also keeping hold of the history you're keeping hold of these you know the, all these stories that we're uncovering I think in general is quite it's not an English it's not a sound you make in English at all it's the sound you make out the side of your mouth which doesn't really happen when you're using linguistics with English um so it's and obviously as as a, when you're learning anything in life you're going to take your knowledge that you have and the way that you read language for example if you see a letter you're going to automatically associate that with a sound that you know that that letter should make i know a common one that people do is they see a y in welsh and they say an e sound instead of an er uh, you hear that a lot with people say penavan uh, penny fan uh, which I, I do I struggle to understand what they're saying sometimes it takes me a few <laughs> it takes them saying it a few times to kind of get the meaning across but then it's just them trying to say that is opening up that discussion and we can you know we, we can talk about that place and you know they're having that go I found um I found growing up that my name has got a double L in it so I got like the Welsh surname going Llewellyn and like a lot of people growing up, they couldn't pronounce my name. And I I didn't go to a Welsh-speaking primary school or anything. I learned Welsh as an adult. So I grew up around all English-speaking Welsh kids. And a common one I had was Clewellyn, um, which used to really annoy me. Um, but yeah, so I think, I don't know, I was lucky that I had to learn to say my own name. So I've got the, you know, the sound down. But I think a lot of people do struggle with it. Because, like you said, it isn't an everyday sound that that you would use in English. It does take a bit again used to. At the same time, when you when you study linguistics from, from around the world, there are, are so many weird ways of um, pronouncing things. So, for for example, um, my wife's a, a native Cantonese speaker, so I would just learn a little bit of an introduction, um, an introduction to a, a video I was doing for for. A, a company in Hong Kong and the tonalities of that are completely different there are places in in Europe where the breathiness of what you say changes the meaning of it so how much breath you use and and things like that so you know by no means is Welsh unique in the the way that we we the letters that we have in the way that we we say them but in many ways it is unique um in that we are the alphabet that we have and the and the language that we we create with it, it sounds fairly unique. Do you know what I mean? Wanted to say I had a friend in uni and he was um, like a second generation sort of. Well, his parents uh, spoke Mandarin. Uh, I think it was Mandarin, and um, he went into a Chinese supermarket uh, near to where he was in university, and like his Mandarin was really 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 rusty, and he asked for what he thought was. Um, a bunch of oranges but he actually the guy looked at him a little bit funny on the tail and said you just asked me for a bunch of shovels so and it was just because he got like the tone wrong slightly slightly different tone and in completely different words my funny enough my partner's from canton as well <laughs> from hong kong and um she was explaining to me that um that with with certain certain words um you might think of a letter at the end like d but you won't pronounce the D. You just think of it, and just the process of thinking about that letter changes how you uh, how you say the word. 
Yeah, and I, I, you know, I don't know if uh, I'm currently learning Welsh again. Uh, obviously, we learned it in in school up until I think when I was in school up till four, up to fourteen. And I'm I'm relearning now, and it is coming fairly naturally back to me. And but I don't know if that's because we learned it in school a little bit, and and it comes back, or if it's just a an easier language to to pick up. Obviously, there's lots of mutations and lots of different things, but you know, it, it seems the English language at times seems more difficult. English is incredibly complicated. <laughs> um, anyone's ever ever tried to learn English um, um, know that it's 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 a mishmash of loads and loads of different languages. You know, Germanic languages, Scandinavian languages, a lot of French in there as well. There's almost certainly some sort of native. Um, like Iron Age stuff going on, there's Latin as well. It's so actually, in terms of form, Welsh is is much simpler than um, than English is. I've had this debate many times with my friends, where they all say Welsh is impossible to learn, and I'm like, well, once you get the alphabet in general, you can read the words because you know the sounds. It's a fanatical language, uh, whereas in English, you just get completely lost with the sounds of the letters. Yeah, English is a linguistic mongrel, isn't it? It's got a bit of everything. And I suppose that's why, you know, especially when it comes to to modern day Wales and we're thinking about uh, place names and signposts and, and how we get to, like, what do we ask people to say on them? Um, even around places like Ponstigil, Tim, you were saying that there's a there's quite an ancient version of, a, of what a signpost would have been in, in multiple languages. There is. There's a, an early medieval inscribed stone just to the northeast of Ponstichus, which has inscriptions in both Ogham and Latin. And Ogham is a, uh, a very unusual to the modern uh, mind way of writing. It involves notches carved on corners. Um, and this is a way of writing ancient Irish. Presumably that stone commemorates a person, but as with many of the other stones, one assumes that it's also a statement of, of ownership. So it's telling us something there about um, literacy in maybe the 5th, 6th century. Some people could understand and presumably read and write in Irish, some in Latin. But presumably the general populace was speaking something akin to Welsh. And that's quite interesting. You know, it's perhaps the formal languages on the stone are the languages of power. Maybe the Ogham is reflecting the the overlord of the area and, and their background, and the Latin may be reflecting the influence of the church, perhaps. Who knows? Uh, so, yeah, these linguistic challenges have faced people in the area for millennia. And that, I think that's something that you see as well, especially in, in modern day when I, when I visit Hong Kong, that the the way that the politics is now that it's going to more towards like Mandarin across the board, but the very much the working person's language is still Cantonese and I think will be for for a long time. So something we don't always take into account when thinking about the lang how place names are named and how language affects the area is like what are the what the working people calling it and what the, what's power calling it. I think that's a very interesting point. And that's potentially why some of these place names are so important to us because they are a product of what usage demanded very few of our place names except perhaps some of the very modern ones 
were imposed from outside. They are things that are organic, they've grown up through use, and they are telling us about what what people said and how they spoke and what they called things, which is uh, which is very interesting, very democratic. Uh, just picking up on what Tim just said, um, there's a place um, in Aberaman, um that, like I knew quite well growing up, and we all called it the Hayfield. And I literally thought that was its name until last year when researching for this project on a map I found that it was called um, King George's Field and I think that's just a typical example of like an imposed official name and I've, I've never heard anyone around the area call it King George's Field like if you ask someone to the way to King George's Field I think they'd look at you silly but if you say oh do you know the hayfield they'd be like oh yeah yeah it's just there and it just amazed me that it could be officially on a map listed as something that I've never heard of, having lived there for decades. And yeah, I find that quite interesting, like a dual identity. That's great about us projects like this though, because obviously we're trying to form those connections with people back to the landscape and back to what's there. And I think we're doing it in such a way that opens it up to the public. So it's not just people who are studying specific, you know, uh, people, studying history or archaeology we do want to open it up to the general public so it can kind of be brought back into use again yeah like if there wasn't something like this project recording like common usage names as well then like like the example with the hayfield if it isn't written down anywhere and it's not recorded or documented then how how does that knowledge get preserved other than word of mouth locally I find it really, I think this project is just super important for that aspect alone. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, preserving names like in that way is, is very important um, archaeologically because cause very often a place will tell you, like Hayfield, will tell you, uh, it's a, literally a description of uh, what that place used to be. I mean, I was looking at the um, 1885 OS map of the area, there's a place called Hjoyner Odin, um, as Odin refers to Kiln. So there's no archaeological evidence for it, but 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 we know there must have been a kiln in that area. Uh, we don't know what type of kiln. It could be a lime kiln. It could have been a uh, like like a sort of a charcoal pit. But um, but that's 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 really I think that's really important because it ties you to the the history of the place. And one of the things that that will continue to happen in in language and in all languages, I I watched a video recently and um, it was talking about eggcorns. Uh, which are things that uh, have changed in language that we say now that never used to be the original saying. So one of the best examples I can think of is um, is a card shark that used to be a card shop. Um, and there are multiple other examples. Some people say an escape goat, like you're escaping something rather than a scapegoat. Uh, and to curb your enthusiasm instead of to curb your enthusiasm. And things like card shark, like to... To most people, that it is exactly what it's exactly what it's called now, and what it will be for, forever going forward. But the original name was Card Shark, and that's changed now, such that that Card Shark is now the way, the correct way to say it and the correct way to spell it. And that must happen so much in in place names as well. Just like the you say it slightly differently, and just over time, that accretion of people saying it slightly differently becomes the name of that place. Um, whether that's through language, I saw recently that, or I heard recently, someone asking me what um, a bowl of 
of soup. This polo soup is in Welsh and it was cowl. Um, but spelt in the same way as Porth Coal. And I was like, hold on. Am I saying Porth Coal wrong? <laughs> is it Porth Cowl? <laughs> but but we just we said we've said it different for so long and it becomes colloquially known. And now it is the way that we say it, right? I wonder if language will change as well from like just people being online more and like texting and emailing more than speaking because like I've noticed people like there's grammatical changes going on in the language and like you said about like the egg cones um where like certain phrases and even certain like word formations are sort of changing through text and I do think like the English and Welsh languages in future will just like change naturally and it's just so interesting I wonder if we can like track it somehow through digital changes you know over time it would be fascinating i don't know how you could do it but i'd love it if someone could that comes back to you know things projects like this and places like ponstickilch and there may be a, a bit of pressure in places like ponstickilch and clanfire pg and and places like that to to change i mean clanfire pg is a bad example because it was changed as a marketing ploy um so that was already a a made, I was going to say a made-up name, but all all words are made up. So, um, what I mean is, is there going to be pressure to change Ponstickilch and names like it to something different that's easier for people to say? And is that something that we should resist? Personally, when I think of the official places and places that are connected with history, I think there is a level of responsibility to kind of keep that there. I think when you're having an open discussion like this or when you're trying to open doors to people into a language that they've never they don't have any experience with I think having a more informal discussion um, and opening you know opening up in that way uh, I think is fine um, but I think it's the same as the historical reference in a way you want you have a responsibility to keep keep the ties there yeah, I think we do. Um, Reese was referring there to looking at, at old ordnance survey maps, and we they've maybe not been done specifically for that purpose, but we do have records. And I think historically, if you look at uh, some of the the reference works on place names, there are great compilations. You can look up individual towns or villages or farms, and somebody will have already documented the changes in that place name all the way back as far as they can. So there are some wonderful stories uh, amongst there that you can you can look up. Indeed, including while you were talking, I was looking up to see what the reference books did say about Porth Call, and they indeed say that it is probably named because the seaweed was collected uh, at the point, and so the connection is indeed with, with the word for soup. I mean, another thing I wanted to touch on was bilingualism. There is a level of embarrassment or a level of, uh, I think sometimes you know the other person can speak Welsh and you get introduced as a Welsh speaker and you put so much pressure on yourself to just use that one language and naturally you want to be able to say a sentence and not have to stop and throw meddle on a guy and a yaith arall. But I love the fact that we medry 
I love the fact that I can swap from one language to the other. Um, and I, I do think we, we should put a lot less pressure on ourselves to just stick with one language, just 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 to get things flowing and kind of bring up your codilane chyder. Ah, llawer clai o boisau gan siaradwyr um, Cymraeg am ffrydorol hefyd. I think we need to have an understanding that non-native Welsh speakers, when people speak Welsh, it's not to to disclude or discount non-native Welsh speakers, that native Welsh speakers le- need to feel less pressure to not speak their own language, if that makes sense. To, to it's, it's okay, even around people who don't speak Welsh, to continue, as we've been doing on this podcast, to dip in and out of it as we go along. I think you find that so often. You meet somebody and you know that they speak Welsh and you know you can speak Welsh. And you just, I think, you unless one of you starts it, the other person, just, you just naturally fall into speaking in English. And I think it would be so great Austin and Gatley just flick your mass or mewn of Cymraeg and just have conversations in both languages when, when you know that you're both bilingual. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do exactly the same with Harry in work. I know he's fluent speaking. And I know in my head, I'm like, I think, oh, I should speak. You've got to remember to speak to him in Welsh. And yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's my, my nanoth. Yeah. And to tie this up in, into a bow then, is this pressure that we're, that we're talking about from um, native Welsh speakers and non-native Welsh speakers back and forth? And if we've fallen into this, especially in, the, in South Wales, the speaking and having uh, place names and signs and stuff in English, do we feel that pressure to continue the relationship of being Welsh in South Wales in English and not in Welsh? Or is that something that we can slowly change and say, okay, we've had this relationship thus far for the last however many years in English, we'd like to change and we'd like to start talking in, in Welsh and have our place names in Welsh and everything else? Yeah, I, know, I personally, I, I'm extremely proud and privileged to be able to and use English. And I think it's, it's it's an important thing to keep going, and it's an important thing to you know carry on with um, and use as much as possible. Adwin triosh Yeah, yeah, I think we can uh, we can all agree with that. Well, team, Um Thank you so much, Jochen for that conversation. We've got lots more episodes coming coming out, and we've had a lot so far as well. So thank you very much for for listening. We've all learned lots uh, and we'll see you in the next episode thank you team the cultural connections project is part of the wales rural development plan 2014 to 2020 which is funded by the european union fund for rural development and the posh government it is being commissioned by merthyr tidville canterborough council delivered by tacp uk limited black mountains archaeology geo arch and hugh james media Mae cysylltiad y diwylliannol yn rhan o gynllun datblygu gwledig Cymru 2014 a Hugh James Media.